Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. I wish the world was twice as large and only half explored. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are wrapping up our tour through the final plane in our Modron March. That is the Twin Paradises of Bytopia. Today we are going to be covering the two layers of Bytopia in their fairly sparseness to be completely honest. Yeah, like we mentioned our last episode when we covered just like the nuts and bolts of Bytopia, this really is more of a peaceful kind of come here, catch your breath, lick your wounds type plane. There's not a lot of faction strife. There's not a lot of bells and whistles here. It's nice. It's calm. It's kind of idyllic. Again, this is our nice soft landing. It really (laughs) is. Again, Bytopia is where I would want to go. This is the plane that really, you know... It sings to you. It checks all my boxes. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Yeah, because I grew up on a farm. I'm used to that sort of work-with-your-hands sort of life. And to have a plane where you can do that and not have to really suffer the ravages of the work on your body... And you just spend eternity just tending your farm and doing your thing. That just sings to me. It really does. This is about as close as D&D gets to the Garden of Eden, really. Like I said, it's fairly idyllic. I would not land here permanently. I would probably visit frequently. I think I would probably get bored again. (laughs) I I like a little bit more mechanation in my life, but that's just me. (laughs) I like being left alone, so. There's that, too. This works for me. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and get started. So the first layer is Dothian. Dothian is also called the Land of Pastoral Industry. In the second edition Planescape books, it is described as a pre-industrial industrial world. Agrarian. The college word is agrarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, but it isn't. It's agrarian plus plus. Yeah. Because it isn't just the wilderness has been tamed and we're farming on it. It's more than that. The whole layer is basically a romanticized version of Europe between the end of the Black Death and the start of the Industrial Revolution. I could see that. I kind of also get the whole, you know, Little House on the Prairie, kind of that idyllic Western Plains. Yeah. Kind of like Kansas with cornfields or wheat fields and just kind of that feel as well. Yeah, that turn of the century Midwest, Ozark sort of feel. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I can get that too. More trees than that, though. Right. Yeah, there are definitely forests forests and (laughs) mountains. The Ozarks, I've driven through the Ozarks. They're not very large. (laughs) No, but no, that's okay. Yeah, that's that's fine. They are pretty for what they are. We appreciate them. And there's a couple good places to dig up some nice rocks there, too. So that's yeah. always my, my thing. We need to not throw shade. No, we really shouldn't. I, yeah, I, because, like, again. because Appalachians and the Ozarks have a lot of similarities to them. They do. They and really do. We have more in common than we have different, really. Yes. So we need to not be throwing shade. Like I was saying, we appreciate the Ozarks. They are a smaller mountain range, but there is quite a bit there. They are pretty for what they are. There's quite a few really neat things to see. Um, I would suggest if you haven't gone, go for the experience because it's definitely something you don't really want to miss. So there's enough there to grab your attention. Sure. Okay. So the way that Dothian is structured, they talk a lot about the agrarian aspects of the plane because there is a lot of agriculture going on here. It has reached that stage in progression where your domesticated livestock isn't wandering. You don't have free roaming herds that you send a shepherd along with to make sure that they don't get into anything too heinous. You actually have fenced in plots of field where your livestock is contained, which is a fairly big advancement in large-scale livestock production. Some of the livestock that they mention are sheep that have silver or golden fleeces. Because, again, this is a good aligned plane. It is very close to the older editions, the plane of positive energy. And so it has that aspect sort of bleeding into it. Because it's adjacent to Elysium, the plane of pure good. So it's going to have a lot of that bleed over coming into it. 
a lot of the things, while very natural, are going to be idyllic natural. Absolutely. It's going to be as pretty and as pristine and as perfect as it can be, but still feel natural. It's not going to be manufactured. Yeah, it's going to have, you know, all of those shows and movies where the college kids go out into the country and they find that little town where everything is just a little too perfect and everything is great for that 20 minutes before it actually unravels into the horror movie it's like that except it never unravels yeah i'd even say it might even be a little toned down from that so it's just enough that it wouldn't put you off yeah it's not quite uncanny valley yeah absolutely so one of the big things that they do point out is that water power is very popular there are lots of water mills and water wheels that power certain things so it is a very early aspect to a pre-industrial revolution world so you're so close to steampunk we're so close to steampunk but we don't have steam so there's not a steampunk aspect because they don't have steam power and that plays heavily into the idyllic atmosphere because once you have steam power then you have all the smoke and then you start having the pollution and that is an aspect that they were trying to avoid i think in the trail of this plane they didn't want the industry to mar the beauty of the plane yeah and because water power is so prevalent here there are also lots of canals in this plane partly to water the fields where all of these crops are growing, but also to allow for the transport of goods to the various trade towns within the plane so that the goods that are made in Bytopia can be traded or sold to go elsewhere. Right. So for me as a DM note, I would take this and run with it. And I would say, because as we'll talk about, everyone produces something. And so a lot of handcrafts work is going to be seen here. So I would have aqueduct systems everywhere, kind of almost like little mini highways. The other thing I kind of think of is the city. I don't think it's Bossing Say, but the capital city of the Earth Kingdom in Avatar, where they've got. Yeah, that, the, that was Bossing Say. Okay, where they have the earth ramps, where everything kind of slides down towards the base, and they've got that whole distribution system. It would be like that, but with aqueducts. These aqueducts would be carved stone and beautiful masonry and arches and things like that. It would look kind of like the French cathedrals would, just every flying buttresses and all that. So again, it would look very idyllic and very pristine and very well kept. And I can certainly see, even with that, you have your set of locks So that way, the aqueduct that is coming out of the mountains has a chance to step down periodically. And at each step down, there may be even like an offshoot that leads off towards another town. Yeah, that would make perfect sense. And because Dothian is a very tame layer compared to Shirok, where the weather is very volatile, you would be able to establish this sort of aqueduct system and be able to maintain it because you don't have to worry about the ravages of the elements to try and disrupt that. Right. And again, where everything is so idyllic and so regular and pristine, you could probably even set up some form of transport or schedule where you could like mass ship things. And again, depending on how in-depth you would want a cityscape here to be built, but this would be something you could definitely develop where you had certain areas of the aqueduct run at certain times where you could move people as well as stuff. And this would run like clockwork because everything here is idyllic. And a lot of these trade towns are set up on the major rivers because there are a lot of rivers that run through Dothian too. And the rivers are broad and deep and slow, all very conducive for river travel and river trade. Yes, And so there is definitely a lot of river travel. And I would even go so far as to point out that the River Oceanus does run through this plane yeah is not explicitly stated in the second edition or third edition books but if oceanus is in mount celestia which is on one side and it's in elysium which is on the other side it has to go through yeah it has to so i mean the river Styx doesn't jump over any of the planes on its way (laughs) from one side to the other the river oceanus doesn't either no arguments from me yeah as i mentioned dothian is the production layer of Bytopia. The raw materials are harvested primarily in Shurok. Not exclusively. There are mines and lumber mills and all that sort of thing going on in Dothian as well. 
but they are primarily gathered in Shirok and brought to Dothian where the craftsmen do what they do. Most of the raw materials that you're going to find within Dothian are going to be agricultural materials. So you're going to have foodstuffs, but you're also going to have things like cotton and flax. You're going to have leathers and fleeces. You're going to have meat from the animals. You're going to have things like feathers. Feathers are a big thing. Yes. It's not so much anymore, but trust me, in medieval and Renaissance Europe, Feathers were a big thing. Being able to have a down feather mattress was the sign of opulence. Yes. Again, kind of for a more Americana focus, the type of things you would vision in, quote, quote, the general store you're going to find here. It's going to be, again, necessary items generally handmade, nothing terribly complex. It is going to be simple. It's going to be functional stuff that you can make your own shirts or make your own supplies. It's a lot of not raw resources, but simple resources that you can later move in. So you'll have lumber that you can either use to build a fence or a house or a gate or use for art. It's not going to already be broken down and specialized. Sometimes. Generally. Because there are also those master level craftsmen here. And so you are going to have your ornate woodworking. You're going to have your ornate pottery. You're going to have your high quality smithed weapons and armor. You're going to have your quality jewelry and gem cutting. You're going to have all of your silver and gold filigrees. You're going to have glass blowers. You're going to have all of these fine crafts in addition to your simpler crafts right but they are going to be far fewer no james the craftsmen here are considered among the highest caliber in the multiverse oh okay then i stand corrected yeah there are people who come here specifically to buy bitopian goods because they are of a quality to rival or exceed what you can find elsewhere okay and because they are far more accessible than, say, what the Dwergar in Akron are putting out or what the dwarves in Mount Celestia are making. It's easier to get to Bytopia and it's easier to get to the trade cities where they're making this stuff and get hold of it. Okay. I mean, the largest trade city in Bytopia is one that we're going to be talking about here in a little bit called Yeoman, which is literally just a couple of miles outside of the portal to the gate town in the Outlands. Almost liking Bytopia a little bit more, but then I remember there's still gnomes here, so... Yeah. Eh. <laughs> you and gnomes. I, gnomes I don't... and halflings, they, they weird me out. They just they scare my knees. They weird me out. They're tiny. I just don't get them. All right, let's go ahead and get started on (laughs) the elements of Dothian, especially since James is talking about his phobia of gnomes. And (laughs) this first location is the Golden Hills, which is the realm of Garl Glittergold and by extension, the entire gnomish pantheon. (laughs) This particular realm is so ubiquitous that many of the residents of Dothian simply refer to Dothian as the Golden Hills. And so whenever you're talking to somebody, you have to keep in mind whether they're a native or whether they're from another plane. Because if they're from another plane and they talk about the Golden Hills, they're probably talking about Garl's realm. Whereas if they're a native and they're talking about the Golden Hills, they're just talking about this whole layer in general. Okay. So the Golden Hills is a naturally hilly portion of Dothian. That's dotted with forests and farms and all these, you know, deep tunnels that go under the ground. And every living thing within the realm is tinged with gold. The examples they give are golden whiskered raccoons to golden barked trees to golden feathered birds. Everything has this golden highlight to it at some point. I like it. Kind of pretty. Still gnomes, but I'm liking it. (laughs) There are seven hills within the center of the realm, which are the quote, quote, golden hills. And each one of these hills is the home to one of the seven primary good aligned gods of the gnomish pantheon. 
there are three in particular that are detailed in the books. The first one is the Gemstone Burrow. The Gemstone Burrow is the domain of Segejan Earthcaller, who is kind of a god of agriculture. He's called the Tiller of the Soil, but his realm also involves mining and excavating and earthworks. Yeah, I mean, they all kind of follow the same thread, so I can get that. The rumor is that this particular hill is the location of the Gnomish Pantheon's treasure hoard, or at least the gemstone portion of it, because the common wisdom is, why would they call it the gemstone burrow if it isn't full of gemstones, right? Misdirection, but probably yes. And the misdirection is probably not far off. This is a home to many Gnomish minor petitioners. That's E-R, not O-R. There's not a bunch of children running around. <laughs> These are the guys that dig in the dirt. These are the guys that dig in the dirt. Hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> and every form of burrowing creature in existence. That can be a little terrifying. Yes. We've had some scary burrowing creatures pop up every now and again. Because while that does include things like badgers and gophers and moles. And bun-buns. And bunnies. To the point where they actually mentioned that the badger, gopher, and mole animal lords from the Beastlands, who were such minor individuals that they didn't even come up in our Beastlands episode because there's no stats for them, they regularly come and visit. Nice. But it also includes things like boulettes and umber hulks and purple worms. (laughs) It's everybody. It's everybody. (laughs) Even while you're in this relatively safe, idyllic space, there is still room for excitement. It is not completely dull. You don't have to be running an evil campaign just trying to, you know, smash up some nice stuff. You can have your party here catching a breath and still have something to kind of raise the blood pressure just a touch. Yeah, you can. But the entirety of this particular portion of the realm is made to exemplify what's basically the ideal hobbit hole. Yes. Safe, warm, and dry. I would like a hobbit hole, except I'd hit my head on everything. Well, I mean, it's an infinite hill, so you can probably find a section of this hill that is seven feet tall so that you wouldn't hit your head all the time. <laughs> I would feel like Gandalf and Bilbo's little hole, just kind of, kind of stooping <laughs> in. It's like, hey. <laughs> hit your head on the chandelier every time yeah. you walk through the room. I do that in most people's houses already. <laughs> and those are human homes. <laughs> And the last note for the Gemstone Burrow is that all gnomes who enter this particular portion of the realm gain the benefits of the animal friendship spell, which applies to all digging, tunneling, or burrowing animals for their entire stay in Bytopia. Kind of pleasant. I mean, this is like the world's best petting zoo if you're a gnome. That would be kind of awesome. Oh, yes. Especially (laughs) since gnomes at least in 5th edition, have the racial ability to, is it speak with animals, with burrowing creatures? I don't recall exactly. I don't know. I tend to avoid the gnome section of the book. (laughs) I happen to have the PHB open in front of me at the moment. It is specifically forest gnomes. Okay. And speak with small beasts. Okay. Okay. Still nice. So you can't talk with the big ones, but they're not going to eat you. Fair enough. If you're not a gnome, though, all bets are off. (laughs) Dirty gnomes. The second one is the Mithril Forge. This hill is the domain of Flandel Steelskin, who is the gnomish god of metalworking. The tunnels beneath this hill hold an endless supply of ore, as well as the smelters and forges used by the petitioners to make all manner of metallic goods. Flandel himself works a living forge called the Mithril Forge, which is growing out of a vein of mithril within the tunnel. That's kind of awesome. I would much prefer this section. Still kind of creeped out by the little folk, but more feeling this one. And Flandel shares his forge with Amatsumara, who is the Japanese god of blacksmiths and weapon making that we mentioned last time. Yes. So there is a Japanese god that is sharing a realm with the gnomish gods. I won't king shame. Yeah. <laughs> this particular realm has numerous vortices that touch on different planes of existence. So the tunnels within here are rumored to extend all the way into Shurok, which I'm not entirely sure how that works. That is that planar metaphysics where you don't always have that linear orientation. Right. You're not operating in three dimensions anymore. Right. Because 
you know, there's a mile gap of air <laughs> between <laughs> Dothian and Shirok. So I'm not sure how digging down can get you up. But just, hey, just throw your dice at the player and say D&D magic. <laughs> but the tunnels also extend into the Outlands. And what it just says is other planes. I would almost be certain that there is a couple uh, portals to sigil through here. And again, where this giant forge is, and we talked about the quality of the makers and the craftsmen here, there's probably going to be a fair amount of traffic and or commerce going on. Well, there is an NPC merchant that is mentioned by name, and I didn't think to write his name down, but his whole thing is he comes in and trades to pick up the goods that are made here and takes them off to Yeoman, which is the okay. primary trade town in Bytopia, okay. to facilitate the trade between the gnomes and the outside. I like it. So the other planes that the tunnels touch aren't named in the books, but it does mention that the denizens wouldn't be happy to find out the gnomes were down there mining out from underneath them. So I'm thinking things like you're obviously going to have them going into the elemental planes of fire and earth and possibly even the para-elemental plane of gems. I could see that. I could see Mechanus. I could Um, see Mechanus. I can see Akron. Akron. Was Akron the other plane where the Fomorians were? The Ant Peoples? The Formians? The Formians are in Arcadia. Arcadia. I would say Arcadia as well. I was saying Akron because Akron is where you have all of the iron cubes. Yes. That would make a lot of sense. Because if these tunnels are able to reach across planar boundaries, having one of these spit out into the heart of one of these iron cubes, and they're mining out this iron cube from the inside. Yeah. Because the material, theoretically, as far as I know, it's never confirmed, but it's hinted at strongly that it's the same metal that Mechanist is using to make their cogs. Correct. So it has to have a certain amount of usable properties to it. Right. But those are some of the elements to that. But it really does leave it open, so it does leave it up to DM's choice. You can really get anywhere from here. There's so much about Bytopia that is just left open. I mean, there's a few very small guidelines to what is normal practice for Bytopia. And as long as you fall within roughly those guidelines, the sky's the limit to what you can do here. Bytopia really does wind up being kind of a catch-all, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And the final detail about the Mithril Forge is that any gnome who enters the presence of the forge gains the benefits of a Ring of Fire resistance for one full day, regardless of where they go upon leaving the forge. Nice. That would definitely help with going to some of those Earth Elemental planes and doing some digging. Okay, and then the third location within the Golden Hills that is detailed is Whisperleaf. Whisperleaf is the hill domain of Bervon Wildwander, who is the gnomish protector of forests and glades. And the realm's name refers to the ancient oak tree that stands on top of the hill. The oak tree also happens to be the home of Bervon's animal companion, who is a giant raccoon named Chiktika Fastpaws. Nice. Who is apparently a fearsome creature that is capable of whooping up on most anything that comes into the grove, be they from the material plane or from one of the outer planes. Okay, so with this giant raccoon, one thing a lot of people don't know is that one of the more closely related species to the raccoon is in fact a bear. They are in the same family as bears. So just think a hyper-intelligent bear with opposable thumbs. Yeah, I'm kind of good with that one. I like it. (laughs) I kind of like it. Oh, yes. So Bervon lives in a lodge on this hill that is half cabin above ground, half burrow under the ground. And as is the case for most deity homes, it's bigger on the inside. Of course. Just how you do. It is. It's about par for the course. Yeah. And rumor has it that any non-gnome who goes into Whisperleaf will always leave missing one or more items, weapons, or other possessions. Now, see, and this ties in with a lot of lore, so especially I'm, I'm going to reference Kieran again. Their their version of Gnome or Halfling is called the Kinder, and they are known to be kleptomaniacs. They are known not to steal out of malice, but they just, things wind up in their pockets. And gnomes and halflings generally, in various story and lore, have this... What's the word I'm looking for? Give me a second. Proclivity? 
Yeah, has this proclivity about them. So this doesn't really break that stereotype so much. So eh, <laughs> kind of funny, right. but I get it. So this particular missing item is never noticed until after they leave. And okay. the only way to get it back is to go into Whisperleaf and play a suitable prank or practical joke on one of the denizens of the plane. This is nasty because you're going back, so you're going to lose another item, so you're playing this prank, and basically you're trading your items out. <laughs> I think I would run it that if you had prior knowledge that this was a thing, and you planned properly, and you did the prank while you were there initially, okay, that they would see that, and they would respect that, and they wouldn't take it in the first place. I could see that as a DM fiat. Yeah, I would be okay with that. That is how I would run it. Okay, I like it. And it is specified that no other method, including violence, will cause the items to be returned to you. Fair enough. You can't murder hobo your way to get your stuff back. Nope. So with this place, this would be a really solid place to set up a good druid's grove. It would be kind of perfect for it, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Especially given the portfolio of the god who's living here. Absolutely. This is druids and rangers. Yep. In 5th edition, it would also include things like Oath of Ancients Paladins, I think. Yes. Yeah. And then the benefits here, any non-evil gnome who visits gains the benefits of being a first level rogue on top of their current class skills. While they're there. (laughs) While they're there. (laughs) <laughs> you, you don't get to take this one with you. And any gnomes who were already rogues get benefits as if they were one level higher than they are. That would be fun. This is, of course, in second edition where it was a thief and not a rogue and where all of the thief's abilities were based off of a percentile die. Right. And so basically you would get an extra plus 10% to your threshold for success on all of your thief abilities. I like it. I think with that, that roughly translates to just advantage. But I think just giving you that extra level bump, most players would probably prefer that. It's not even advantage. It's 10%. Advantage is roughly a plus 5. Okay. Which is what? 25%? No, 20%. 5 into 100. No, 5 into 20. 5 into 20. Okay. Then, yeah, that'd be 25%. Yeah. I can math, I promise. (laughs) Uh, It's been a long week. It has been. Anyway, let's keep going then. The next location within Dothian to talk about is Yeoman. It's come up a couple of times. It's the primary trade town and the location where many craftsmen either set up shop to make their goods or send their goods to be sold or traded. The leader of the town, the supervisor, if you will, is the Right Honorable Elizabeth the Seer, Mistress of Guilds and Mayor of Yeoman. That is a wonderful title. She is a barriar. They are the sheep centaurs that we talked about a while back, especially whenever we were talking about Isgard. There's a whole town of Beriar in Isgard, which I'm kind of disappointed that they haven't really made a substantial official tie-in. I mean, yeah, you can reskin the centaur to a Beriar, and the centaur is now official. I can't remember which book it was in initially, but it is in Monsters of the Multiverse. So you do actually have official centaur player character options. And yeah, you can just reskin that to be a barrier, but I would have really liked to have a barrier variant official because they do play a very prominent role in the older versions. Right. Well, again, it's not like we have a homebrew podcast. Oh, of course not. No. <laughs> so she is a divination wizard and she uses her divining skills to stay ahead of the curve on trade trends to make the town and herself quite wealthy. I like it. She knows the Facebook and TikTok algorithms. That's she, what it is. Yeah. <laughs> she plays the algorithms hard. I like it. The town itself is actually ruled by the Conclave of Masters, who are the guild masters and guild mistresses of all the different trades in Bytopia. The way it works is the mayor presents a proposal for a particular course of action, and then the Conclave votes on whether or not to do it. This reminds me of one of the free cities in Game of Thrones. It's one of the ones that Daenerys first visits. I forget the name of the city, but they had the Council of Nine, I believe it was. Was that Karth? It may have been Karth. I forget. It's been forever. But yeah, that kind of where it had the ruling council and they kind of all just had town hall meetings and did their stuff. 
Right. And as long as her plots seem to be profitable, they seem perfectly willing to keep approving whatever she brings forward. Well, I mean, she's raking in the cash. She is. But there is another faction that is starting to engage in business here called the Planar Trade Consortium. This was a faction that was presented in Dragon Magazine 183. Ooh. I know this because I went to see if I had that issue and I don't I have 184. <laughs> <laughs> so close. So close. But they are a faction that is basically setting up trade hubs throughout the multiverse and bringing everything into the outlands so that they can redistribute it back out. Okay. And their representative here in Yeoman is an ogre mage named Estevan. That's awesome. I love the name. I love the fact it's a giant ogre mage. I'm seeing the wow ogre mages. Yeah, too, I was so. about to say, I would, I would totally give him two heads, just like <laughs> ogre mages in World of Warcraft. That's awesome. I love these guys. Okay, great. And they're starting to purchase large quantities of goods from all of the trades. And there's basically a steady caravan at all times running from the town of Yeoman to the portal gate that leads into Trade Gate, which is the gate town in Outlands where they are based out of. Okay, I like it. So we got some competition. We got Costco and Sam's Club kicking up here. Yeah, and their entire goal is to become such a strong buyer in the market and control enough of a share to where they supplant the Conclave of Masters as the ruling party in Yeoman. Oh, they're doing dirty Walmart stuff. I love it. Absolutely, yes. Yes, we need to do an anti-Walmart uh, campaign now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to do an anti-Walmart campaign in general. Well, granted, but yeah. And then the third faction that's really playing ball here in Yeoman is the Order of Plains Militant, which we talked about a little bit last time. They're starting to gain converts. Some of the converts are members of the Conclave. Most notable is Guildmaster Thanos Darkwove. That is not an ominous name at all. No, not at all. <laughs> he is the guildmaster of Yeoman's Weaver's Guild. Okay. And he sees the Brethren, the Order of Plains Militant, as a stepping stone necessary to gain enough influence to make himself mayor. This guy's absolutely going to have the top hat and like the giant black handlebar mustache. And the monocle. Yeah, and the monocle, absolutely. <laughs> and the crystal top cane. Yes. Oh, God. He's, he's basically <laughs> going to be the penguin. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> that is perfect. I love it. Got to have coattails and everything. No, that, everything. That, that's perfect. I love it. <laughs> and then the last notable location within Dothian is called the Baku's Graveyard. As we mentioned in our last Bitopia episode, the Baku are these elephant-like creatures. After the episode, I actually went and looked up some of the real-world mythological lore behind the Baku. I always thought that they were a South Asian creature, but they're actually from Japanese mythology. Nice. And they are a chimeric creature. They have, I think it was like the trunk and body of an elephant, but the paws of a tiger and a couple of other things, uh, that is like a, terrifying. a rhino's eyes, maybe. And the whole thing was, it's basically a creature that was cobbled together from all of the leftover parts when the gods were creating the creatures to populate the world. Yeah. So it is a divine chimeric creature from Japanese mythology. Apparently, they had a renaissance and were fairly popular in the early 20th century. Okay. There was a period where it was very common, especially for children, to have a carved Baku figurine sitting beside the bed when they slept because the Baku eat dreams. Okay. So they were kind of one of the first memes. Kind of. <laughs> okay. I get it. And the thing was, you know, if you wake up from a nightmare, you would call out to the Baku to come and eat the nightmare so that you could go back to sleep. And there was also an element to it where... If you did this too frequently or if they weren't satisfied with whatever they ate after you called them to you, that they would also eat your hopes and aspirations. Oh, my. These things are terrifying. But they are generally considered a good creature. Y yeah. Yay. 
I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not feeling these ones. That's more of a, if you abuse their purpose. Uh, yeah, I get that. They're kind of terrifying. I mean, elephants are cool. Rhinos are cool. Tigers are cool. But you start mixing rhino, elephant, and tiger together, and that is nightmare fuel. That's where your freaking nightmares are coming from. And then this thing is going to sit there and eat your hopes and dreams on top. Yeah, of course I'm having freaking nightmares. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Getting back to Bytopia. Yes. As the name suggests, the Baku Graveyard is a location where the Baku go in their old age to die. It is a literal elephant's graveyard. Okay. There are a faction of Baku that live here that are referred to as the Holy Ones. These are the Baku who lead the species as a whole, and they are differentiated from the other Baku by their long mats of thick hair. They're basically woolly mammoth Baku. Okay. And they never seem to feed on the vegetation within the grove, nor is there any surface water there to support the herd, but they stay here nevertheless. So that suggests that there is something deeper within that can sustain them. Yeah, everyone's freaking nightmares that they're creating. (laughs) (laughs) And Baku in D&D are actually psionic as well. Yeah, these things are terrifying. The grove where the Baku graveyard is was chosen long ago for its wilderness setting, for the good nature of Bytopia and the location's relative safety and remoteness from the evils present in the outlands where the Baku tend to spend a lot of their time. This is a very sacred location and the Baku who live here don't let anyone who is not Baku in. This is the Baku retirement home. (laughs) One of those like old geriatric communities. This is the farm. Yes. Wink, wink. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who manages to sneak in would be surrounded by a large number of very angry psionic elephant-like creatures and a bunch of similarly minded treants and will probably never leave alive. Yeah, again, they're creating the nightmares they're eating. That's just, they're farming them. (laughs) So, as I just mentioned, the grove is protected by a large number of treants who are probably present when the first Baku Holy One arrived and played a substantial role in why they chose this place in the first place. Because it offers additional protection, especially against a race of creature called the Malefants, who are kind of... Elephant-headed humanoids that are on the evil side of the spectrum. Right. Whether the two are actually related or just happen to be similar is up for debate. But yeah, they don't get along. Okay. Let's just put it that way. And it is rumored that at the heart of the grove is a baby Baku, possibly even a new holy one, which would explain the strictness by which they are currently keeping non-Baku out. So like the reincarnation of their Buddha, more or less? Buddha, or maybe something like a Dalai Lama. Yeah, I can see that. Just, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. No, I can definitely get with that. And that's essentially Dothian. Again, not a bad place to be. You can definitely get some story arcs kicking in with these trade guild wars that are kicking over in Yemen. With that, you could take your party's break and then lead them to wherever else if you were doing a Planescape campaign. This is a good way to catch your breath, rest for a bit, and then break back out to the next adventures as they were. Again, kind of idyllic, kind of nice. We're going to flip the coin here. And even as we flip the other coin, while it is a bit more quote-quote savage, it's still not bad. It's not hostile. It's not rough. It's not malicious. No, it's just more natural. Yeah. The other layer is Shirok, called the Storm Racked in the second edition books. As Dothian is the realm of manufacturing and finished goods, Shirok is the layer of raw materials. So the most common professions here, you've got mining, smelting, quarrying, and carving. Stands to reason. And most of the professions common to Shirok usually require a large amount of labor in one location. So the settlements that you're going to find here are going to be gathered around a natural resource gathering point. Right. These are going to be mills and quarry towns and mining towns, things like that. So the only thing predictable about the weather in Shirok is that it's probably going to turn bad and do so quickly. Okay. And it's so bad that there is a race of creatures called air sentinels who are air elemental creatures similar to djinn that watch over travelers and 
the denizens of the lair and will give them a heads up whenever bad weather comes in. It's the emergency alert system. And that's nice, though. They're the National Weather Service. They, they can't, <laughs> can't change the weather, but they can let you know when the bad weather's about to hit. Time to take shelter. Please move away from the windows. <laughs> if you have a basement, go ahead and crawl into one. Yeah. The landscape of this layer matches the weather. It is a hard and rocky sort of terrain, steep hills, and fast-flowing rivers. Um, so it is sort of a Rocky Mountains sort of feel to it. Yeah, I get that. And the raw materials that are harvested in Shirok are then taken and carted to one of the spires, which are the mountain columns where the two layers are actually physically connected to one another. And that's where they take them to transport them from Shirok to Dothian. Okay. And the way that they do it is really interesting. Basically, they're using hot air balloons. Nice. They will take the materials and they will enclose them into a spherical container. The preference is for metal containers because they will survive impact better. But a lot of them are wooden containers for a lighter container to get better lift. And then you have a bunch of airbags that they'll hold over a forge, a natural hot air vent or something like that until they all fill up and it becomes buoyant and it'll lift it up. And if you're really good, it will lift it up to the point where the transition is and then it will swing around and between the mile up and the swinging around, enough of the hot air will have dissipated out of the bags to where it will start to descend on the Dothian side. Fairly clever. I like it. And then there's somebody on the Dothian side to catch it or to collect it whenever it comes down. And then they open it up, they put it into another cart, and they cart it off to the town. Okay. I still like the concept of leaving like long stringing ropes off the end of this too. So as it flips, you know, those ropes point down and you could potentially like grab or hook those ropes in and kind of drag whatever you're doing in as well would be a good way to catch that. And I could definitely see with your space elevator idea. Yeah. I could definitely see something like that working where they modify the hot air balloon system. Okay. And basically you have two platforms. You have one that's always up and one that's always down. And you wheel your carts onto the one that's down. You build up the fire in it until it becomes more buoyant than whatever's on the other platform. And so it comes up, the other platform comes down. Yeah. And it meets at that halfway point. And at that halfway point, you change elevators. So you have one elevator that leads from Dothian to the transition and one that leads from the transition to Shurok. I like it. That's almost like the uh, great elevator. Again, referencing while you have that great elevator into a thousand needles would be close to that. So yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. So that is how I would make your idea work if I were to put it on my table. Okay. Because that is the next natural progression. Yes. The next natural progression is how can we do this without all of the labor required to take it out of the wagons and put it into the spheres while also making it more secure than the spheres. Right. And the whole reason why they're doing this is because the few gateways that lead from one layer to the other, they're all controlled by the guilds. The guilds have them all on lockdown and if you are trying to get through them and you're not a member of the guild, you have to pay a pretty hefty tariff for the privilege of using that gateway if they'll even let you use it at all because they aren't going to let their competitors pass their goods through their gate. Right. And if you're mainly mining raw materials like rocks and ore, you're not really too worried about it getting banged up in transport. So if your stuff crashes and plummets to the opposing surface, it's still there. You're not losing a whole lot of value. Right. But if you have stuff like... Porcelain. Especially, especially, <laughs> yeah, porcelain, or especially things coming from Dothian back to Shurok, yeah. because the people living there need stuff too. So it things like goods. furniture or glass or ceramic or porcelain, or even, you know, going from Shurok back, you know, things like gemstones. Yeah. Because you know that they're coming up with some big honk and huge gemstones. Oh, yeah. And the value of that gem is in its size. Yes. And if you have a heavy impact, you can shear it. And now you have two or four or 20 pieces depending much on less in value. that are much less in value. So, yes, that is the reason why they use the hot air balloon system, because 
they got tired of having to pay to use the portals and it's mostly secure. Most goods make it from point A to point B mostly intact. Again, got a reference file on this one, but it's very much goblin engineering. It works most of the time. (laughs) 70% of the time, it works 100% of the time. Yep. (laughs) And speaking of these spires, the largest of these spires is simply referred to as center spire. It is a massive peak. It is devoid of all vegetation, and it is the most easily traversed column in Bytopia. It also has the benefit of being an afternoon's brisk walk from Yeoman on the Dothian side. So this is also the closest large spire to the major trade city of Bytopia. It was almost like it was planned. Yeah. (laughs) This is the one spire that doesn't require any climbing checks to ascend it because so many people have traversed up and down center spire over the ages that they have actually worn steps into the mountain so that you actually have a staircase to climb to get from point a to point b impressive there is a way station at the bottom of the mountain called the last chance inn and it is where travelers can get a night's rest and a meal before they have to head up the mountain i mean you're climbing a mountain so it's gonna be a trek it's not gonna be an easy journey well, it might be a, a light journey, but it's going to be a tiring one. I mean, you'll be able to do it all in a day. It is two miles, but it is a mile walking upstairs. Yes. And then a mile walking downstairs. Right. Yeah. You, you kind of want to take that good day's rest beforehand. Go ahead and take that long rest, folks. So not very commonly known. There is a cave network within Center Spire. And some of the caverns actually cross the threshold between the layers, creating a natural gate. Okay. I like this idea. For this, I would run some sort of like cartel campaign where maybe you're trying to smuggle something in or out or across. You're definitely going to find like your Thieves Guild folk kind of hanging around this area. You know, some of your 'er ne'er-do-wells that don't want everything to go through customs. Definitely through here. Especially since, because this gate is in a unique position, being neither in Shurok or Dothian, it sometimes shifts its destination. Okay. Most of the time, if you pass through it and you're not able to just go follow the tunnel from point A to point B, you'll end up on the astral plane. Oops. (laughs) That is the most common thing. You just get spit out into the astral plane and you have to find your way back in. Sometimes you'll instead be deposited in Kragala, which is the first layer of the Beastlands. You'll get spit out of a random cave in Dothian. Or you'll end up in the Outlands. Oops. And even more rarely, sometimes you'll get spit out into Gehenna, Carceri, or Hades. I like this, and I would definitely have, like, the Smuggler's Guild or whoever, like, you buy your pass at the gate, and you take your chances. And maybe they may or may not know where the gateway's pointing out at this exact moment. So, you know, maybe they adjust their prices depending. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun. Like, wow, we got a really good deal this time. What's up? And then you wind up in the middle of Hades. It's like, oh, crap. Those bastards. I think Carceri would be worse. Yeah. Because Carceri, you can't get off. Out. Yeah. <laughs> You're just, it's a one way. Oh, Oh, yeah, that's the way they get rid of enemies. If they could figure that out when that was going to happen, or if they knew, like, it was there for a set amount of time, absolutely, that's how they're getting rid of enemies. Because Carceri is also where you put things like traitors and cowards. Yep. So, yeah. Oh, that would... yeah. We need a mob scenario. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. That works real well. As an aside, there are people who believe that the two layers of Bytopia are literally trying to pull themselves apart and that the spires are the only things that are holding them together. With the way the gravity points, that makes a bit of sense. They also cite that no other plane has the same sort of sandwich effect for their layers that Bytopia does. Okay. And it also raises questions about what might happen if the two layers were actually physically separated. Or if, say, the Brethren were able to steal a part of Bytopia containing a spire and move it to Mount Celestia. A good question. Because if the spires are holding everything together and then and then spires start disappearing. Yeah, that would have been poorly. Probably. Okay. Next location is the lair of the Adamantite Dragon. This is a huge crystalline cavern that serves as the lair of Merciala the Adamantite Dragon. It's only accessible by flight, and it opens above a sheer cliff in the most rugged mountain range in Shurok. 
You're not stumbling across this one accidentally. You have to try to get here. The entire cavern, all of the surfaces are covered with crystals. So I'm picturing this as just a massive geode. Okay, I could see that. It'd be kind of pretty. Yeah, that catch and reflect the light that filters in through the mouth of the cave. And due to this effect, any creature that comes in has to make a saving throw, probably a constitution saving throw. It was a saving throw versus paralysis in second edition. Okay. Or be dazzled or stunned for 1d10 rounds. I could see that. I could also see it as a will save, so kind of like it would be against dazzling lights. Kinda, yeah, I can see that. I would personally use con because it is not a magical effect. Okay. It is a physical effect. Gotcha. Like when you get, oh, it's like the epilepsy effect when there's a bunch of bright flashing lights. Yeah, it's like a flashbang going off in your face. Okay, no, I like it. Now, I could see using a wisdom or will save for this one, though. Evil creatures who fail that save are also blinded for 1d4 hours. Okay, not visiting this one. It sounds pretty, but yeah. <laughs> yeah you would sounds pretty but well, maybe if i go on a good day and i'm just chaotic neutral i might be able to pass yeah okay i mean 1d10 rounds that means you know a minute at most a minute you'll be fine if you get hit by it at all it's the being blind for 1d4 hours you could go on a cloudy day it'll be fine okay again it's that one d four hours being blinded i mean i'm mostly blind already but <laughs> so merciala is the self-appointed guardian of all that is good in Shirok. She works alongside the Air Sentinels to protect travelers on the roads of the plane. Okay, so she is like Noah. You know, you had talked about the Air Sentinels being the weather service, and she's kind of the head of all of that. Yes. Okay, good deal. So one of the things that is laid out as an adventure hook in the Planescape book is that Merciala recently destroyed a troop of minions of Set. Ooh, on their way to cause trouble for the goddess Tefnut in her realm in Bytopia, which implies that there is a gateway somehow linking Bator to Bytopia. Very interesting. And Merciella doesn't know where it is, but somebody clearly does. And now we're back to the trade guilds. We're back to things. We've got our smuggling campaigns. Yeah, we could build this one up pretty easy. I like it. And I can even see this being a splinter element of the Order of Plains Militant, because they understand that they have to shift Bytopia towards law in order okay. to get it into Mount Celestia. And okay. Bator being lawful evil, that would shift it in that direction on the clock face. That would. I also like the fact that you could have this group in there so you could kind of do, you know, kind of like the whole, I don't want to go full war on terror type thing, but where everyone became scared and so things became more rigid. And because everyone was afraid of their neighbor, that kind of whole, you built up a fear of something happening. It's a red scare? Exactly. Yes, that is perfect. You build up a red scare. So just the thought of something else coming. So now you're shifting and getting people more lawful and more isolated and breaking them away would be a good way to do that as well. Yeah, and she is apparently also investigating rumors that a rust dragon has managed to slip in from Akron and is gorging itself on the plane's abundant mineral veins. Ooh. So that can't end poorly at all. No, 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 not at all. That could be all <laughs> kinds of fun. I like it. All right. Speaking of Tefnut, the next location is her realm. It's called Windrath because she is the goddess of rain and order. I'm not entirely sure why all of the storms happen. Storms seem kind of chaotic to me, but she is a goddess of order. Okay. She's also lion-headed. I was not aware of that. I wasn't real familiar with her before this. Nor am I, so we'll just say okay and ride with it. Yeah. <laughs> we did mention her proxy in the last episode, because we were talking about why would you have a cat-headed proxy and use a Siamese cat instead of a Sphinx cat? Exactly. So. Yeah, the Siamese cat with the lion-headed... Yeah, it still doesn't make sense. I got nothing anyway, on that one. <laughs> her realm sits atop a pyramid-shaped mountain under a storm-cloud-streaked sky. The peak is usually enveloped by thick billowing clouds, crackling lightning, and roaring thunder. I love storms, so I'd be okay here. Plus, there's not as many gnomes, so doing all right. That is true. Her <laughs> petitioners are primarily human because she is, is it Mulharandi? Is that the I Egyptian? So. Yeah. Yeah. Vedic is the Indian pantheon. Correct. Utheric is the Sumerian pantheon. Yeah. And Mulharandi is the Egyptian pantheon. That does sound correct, yes. Not that it matters because they're not in 
the lore anymore anyway. (laughs) So most commonly visitors to Windrath are simply seeking to get out of the harsh weather and any non-evil creature that comes up can expect to find a warm, if simple meal and a dry, if Spartan shelter to rest in. These are kind of be like those European hostels where you can kind of crash for like pennies on the dollar type thing. Yes, but with fewer furnishings. (laughs) Yeah. You're literally going to get a reed mat on the floor of this big room with a fire in the middle of it. Fair enough. I'd be okay with that. I mean, I'd be okay with it until I woke up the next morning and then I couldn't move. Well, then you can go to that that last chance in and get a good night's sleep and then you'll cross over and it's okay. Yeah. It's better than sleeping in the rain. So her petitioners live beneath the summit, either in deep caverns or under stone overhangs or in pyramid-shaped structures that are carved from the stone of the mountain. And the largest of these conglomerations is the village of Stonecat, where her petitioners carve hieroglyphics into stone tablets, which are then sent to the worshippers of Tefnut on the various material plane worlds where she is worshipped. All right. Which is interesting. I This is the first instance that I have found of a god creating relics. In direct communication. In direct communication with their worshippers. Yeah, good deal. And that's pretty much it. There's really not a whole lot about that one. And then the last location that we've got is called the Ridiculous Tower. I just like this one. <laughs> it's great. This is the site where the Titan Epimetheus tried to build himself a tower to live in. He laid out his stones and he started building it. And after he started it, he decided that he wanted it bigger. So he just expanded the diameter of the tower as he went up. He didn't do any sort of shoring. He didn't take out the original foundation and expand the foundation. No, he just widened the tower as he went up. (laughs) Because as we've mentioned, Epimetheus lacks any pretense of forethought. He is incapable of forethought. That is his nature. Yeah, this makes him fun. It does make him fun. (laughs) He didn't even bother to cut the stones or even find stones of similar size. He just grabbed stones and started stacking them. I think this fits. (laughs) (laughs) And so eventually the tower overbalanced and it just collapsed around his feet. Physics is still a thing. And then he spent a day or three just sort of standing in the middle of all of these rocks that had fallen down. This is okay. Scratching his head and just staring at everything. And then he just sort of wandered off. (laughs) That's it. Nah, okay. And he hasn't tried to build another home since. Or at least not another tower. This is kind of the epitome of ADD brain. It really is. Yes. (laughs) And like, oh, look, something shiny over here. (laughs) He is dug from up. Yes, I love it. (laughs) The funnel-shaped base of the tower is still standing. It's basically just the first floor is still standing and it is relatively unscathed because of the way that the stones fell away whenever it collapsed. And so if you went in, you would be able to find there's a table, there's chairs, there's a hearth, there's a bed with the largest feather mattress you will have ever seen in your life because everything is on the scale of a 20-foot-tall titan. Okay. So this mattress, if you scale it up, that's going to be something like 24 by 10, 11 feet wide, maybe even wider. Yeah, I'd probably even go, oh, I mean... Depending depending on how large. It depends on what size bed it was, you know? If it was a full-size or a queen or a king, you could make it like a California king, and it's like 30 feet wide. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say, again, as we mentioned before, I, I tend to be taller than most, and so if I sleep on a standard queen and sometimes standard kings, my feet hang a good three or four inches off the edge of the bed. That's just how it do. So again, that scale. So if you made this thing to fit him at 20 foot tall, he wants some place to stick his feet. So yeah, I could see 24, 25 feet. Because you don't want your feet hanging off the bed because then the monsters come and bite your toes. Speaking of monsters that are going to come and bite your toes. <laughs> in the second edition book, one of the adventure hooks is that a druid had just returned from a communing with the elements adventure, you know, spirit journeys or whatever the proper term is. And in their journeys, they came past the ridiculous tower and they report that a pack of Nyaths have taken up residence in the tower ruins. Just because. Just because. Because they are crazy enough to fit. I like it, especially with the random gravity that they can throw. So, yeah, yeah. no, that works out great. Yeah. Toe biters. 
This place is fun. It kind of reminds me of one of the Wonderworks house, the uh, Wonderworks kind of play museum things where the house is upside down. It's kind of the feel I get with the whole upside down inverted tower thing. Just kind of crazy and wonky. I like it. I mean, this- it strikes me going back to my farm boy growing up. It's like a grain silo that has had the top taken off of it. Okay. Yeah, I can see that too. Because it comes down to the funnel at the bottom. Yeah. But yeah, that's everything. Yeah, that's Bytopia. Like I said, there is enough here for hooks. This is a great place to be in the middle of a campaign. If you're trying to figure out what to do with your party in between, you know, they just hit fifth level or 10th level and you need something to kind of go and you need an extra week or two to kind of finish up the rest of what you're building for the next several weeks or whatever. This is a good place to drop your characters so they can kind of rest. There's some light stuff to do, but there's nothing crazy going on. And then from here, you can literally go anywhere. Quick, easy hooks. You can have adventures here, adventures off plane. This is a great staging area. And I can definitely see if you wanted to try and play into the fight that's going on currently between the Harmonium and the Governors over that bottom layer of Arcadia. Yes, definitely. that would come. And you wanted to do some sort of peace summit. Okay. This would be a great location to do it because it is neutral ground. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Because there aren't any factions that really and truly claim Bytopia. It's easy to get to. It's conducive to communication because there's no overarching hazards to the plane. This really is the B&B plane. Yeah. I mean, it took me this long to come up with it, but yeah, it's the B&B plane. (laughs) So yeah, that's Bytopia, and that is our Modron March. Huzzah. We made it. We did. We still have to do the Outlands and Sigil. Yes. And we do need to at least give the Underdark a wink and a nod. Yes, we do. I think we might hold on to that and do that for episode 99, leading into episode 100. I like it. That said to our listeners, we are quickly approaching on episode 100, which we are kind of stoked about. Yeah. August 24th is going to be episode 100. And I am going to be trying to wrangle up some of our friends in the TTRPG podcast community to sort of do what Goblin's Corner did on their episode 100, which is sit around and shoot the bull and answer some questions for an hour and a half and have pure, unbridled, unfiltered chaos. Flow of thought. Flow of thought. <laughs> Wait, you're summoning me to unbridled chaos? You've been my DM. You know how this is going to work. <laughs> I mean, I could always just kick you from the call if it gets yeah, bad. That, that, that is true. <laughs> we are in my room after all. <laughs> anyway, thank you everyone for joining us. Next week's episode is going to be one that we've actually already recorded. It was the interview that we did last Friday with Jack Killam, Jack the Giant Killer from Of Gods and Game Masters. It was a wonderful, fun interview. We talked for a great long time, mostly about homebrewing monsters for 5th edition. There were lots of tangents, but everything was primo content. Yeah, no, it was a really fun, really informative. I came away with a lot of really solid ideas. I like how he presents things. It was a really, really fun interview. And again, thank you, uh, John, for joining us. Definitely catch that one because, again, there is a lot of stuff to take away that you can use to build scenarios and monsters and worlds and hooks. And so definitely check it out. His name is Jack, not John. Jack, I'm sorry. Jack, yes. <laughs> anyway, if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitch. Search Under Common Taste and we'll come up. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. If you want to help support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron. Finally, we are also on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord in our show notes, and we would love to have you come over and chat with us. Yes. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome to the podcast. You can find our other podcast wherever you find podcasts. As always, please subscribe, give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Stay safe, everyone. We will see you next week with our already recorded episode of us talking with Jack from Of Gods and Game Masters. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. 
You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willx underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.